you will turn with me to Luke chapter 9. Luke 9, we will be continuing in our series through the Gospel of Luke. We'll be looking this morning at verses 18 through 27. Our sermon this morning is entitled, Christ and His Cross. Our key words for our worshipers in training are cross, save, and ashamed. Now, I hope for all of us that immediately upon becoming Christians and beginning to read the scriptures as Christians, we realize what's unfolding for us from Genesis through Revelation. It's a story that's mainly about Jesus. It's about the only Savior there ever was, the only Savior there ever will be. And it's revealing to us in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that there is only one way of salvation. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we see this beginning in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 21, all the way on through the rest of the Bible, unto even now. God saves people not according to their works, not according to what we deserve, but according to unmerited favor, pure and free. And we learn as the Bible unfolds from beginning to end that God has and has only ever had one plan for mankind, ordered before the foundations of the world from which he has never swerved, which has never been derailed either by the Jews or any other people, and it shall never fail. Quite simply, there is no need, nor has there ever been, any sort of plan B for God. And so every soul that has ever been saved from Adam to the last sinner converted before the second advent of Christ becomes part of the one people of God. All of God's elect are one and shall be one throughout eternity. The body of Christ the bride of Christ, the children of God, co-heirs of the righteous inheritance. And so the burning question must be, and it was for all of us if we're Christians at one point, how do we find our way into this story? But in order to answer that, we have to consider the single most important question that any person will ever answer. The question that Luke has been driving at and hinting at, and now we see Jesus asking his disciples very explicitly, who do you say Jesus Christ is? Now, if what I say is true, and the Bible is continuously driving us toward Jesus, there simply is no more important question than this. And our answer to the question It's not simply a matter of preference or opinion. It's a matter of life and death. And furthermore, what we will find in our text this morning is that our answer to that question will put us in one of two positions. And the preferable position, the one I pray we all find ourselves in by the grace of God, is not the position that we inherently desire. So let's see what Luke records for us in our text this morning, beginning in verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, 
Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah and others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. Now, we have a much more thorough accounting of this episode in the Gospel of Matthew, where we read that Jesus framed the question this way, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And upon asking who the disciples thought he was, Simon's answer was, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bound on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, before we press on, we need to consider why, why Luke has placed such an important emphasis on who Jesus is. We've seen it several times throughout the Gospel of Luke. Jesus' Galilean ministry at this point in the narrative is over. From Luke 9 on, Jesus is now setting his sights on Jerusalem. He's orienting himself toward his coming death on the cross. He's walking into injustice, into betrayal, into brutality, and he is doing it all willingly that we might live forever. So because of Jesus' new orientation, it was absolutely imperative that the apostles understood and confessed who Jesus is. They needed to have a firm grasp on the reality of Jesus' messiahship. At least to know that he was the Messiah, even though it will be very clear to us that they still didn't exactly understand what that would entail. Now, if you've read Matthew's Gospel, you'll notice that between the feeding of the 5,000 in Bethsaida, uh, where we looked at last time in the Gospel of Luke, and where Luke picks up chronologically is not the same place immediately after. In Matthew's Gospel, we see after the feeding of the 5,000, there were many other events that took place. So remember, it's very important that we recognize no Gospel writer records everything that happened. And with Luke especially, it's important to remember that he did not always write chronologically. Rather, he wrote a lot of times thematically. Remember, too, how John concluded his gospel. He said, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did, and were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that were to be written. What an amazing statement. So we're not going to get everything in the gospel accounts, but what an amazing thought, isn't it? The world itself couldn't contain the books of all that Jesus had done if it had been recorded. And so we read that Jesus has now withdrawn from the crowds that he has so often been ministering to. And he's in prayer while the disciples are with him. And eventually Jesus turns to them and he says, Who 
do the crowds say that I am? And what very quickly becomes obvious is that the people don't really know who Jesus is. There's no agreement as to who he was other than the fact that he was extraordinary. And at the very least, a prophet. They didn't have the slightest idea that Jesus was the Messiah. John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. It's interesting here, if you're paying attention, you see that the people's conclusion was completely supernatural. But they don't recognize the Messiahship of Jesus. They were saying, one of the prophets has come back from the dead. And like so many today, they're willing to believe something so incredible as that. But when it comes to the true identity of Christ, they refuse to believe that he was the one that they've been waiting for. The lack of understanding among the people about the true identity of Christ is as much a reality today as it was when Jesus was walking the earth. For example, millions of people today who profess to be Muslim believe that Jesus was a prophet. In fact, they will tell you he was the greatest of the prophets, but he was not God. Others will tell you that Jesus was a great teacher. This was the sentiment of Mahatma Gandhi. He wrote, what does Jesus mean to me? To me, he was one of the greatest teachers humanity has ever had. To his believers, he was God's only begotten son. But could the fact that I do or do not accept this belief make Jesus have any more or less influence in my life? Is all the grandeur of his teaching and of his doctrine to be forbidden to me? I cannot believe so. To me, it implies a spiritual birth. My interpretation, in other words, is that in Jesus' own life is the key to his nearness to God that he expressed, as no one could, the spirit and will of God. It is in this sense that I see him and recognize him as the Son of God. And so as a result of that, Gandhi writes, I believe that he belongs not solely to Christianity, but to the entire world, to all races and people. It matters little under what flag, name, or doctrine they may work, profess a faith, or worship a God inherited from their ancestors. And so to Gandhi and so many others, Jesus was a good teacher of morals, the best of examples to follow, but yet again, certainly not God. Still others have asserted, and it was very popular in the liberalism of the 20th century, that Jesus is a myth, that he never truly lived as a man on the earth and was only an invention of the people so that they could control the masses. Writer Albert Schweitzer wrote a, a book called The Quest for the Historical Jesus, and he states, The Jesus of Nazareth, who came forward publicly as the Messiah, who preached the ethic of the kingdom of God, who founded the kingdom of heaven upon earth and died to give his work in final consecration, never had any existence. He is a figure designed by rationalism, endowed with life by liberalism, and clothed by modern theology in a historical garb. So you see confusion and disbelief about Jesus as the one true and living God is no different today than it was in the first century. And yet, 
Notice, Jesus doesn't dwell at all on this confusion. He doesn't take time to explore why it is that there's great disbelief and misunderstanding. He uses it as an opportunity to ask the disciples the question that really matters. But who do you say that I am? You know, in the end, for you and I, it truly doesn't matter what the world thinks about who Jesus is. They will always be wrong, and there will always be mockers and rejectors on this earth. But what you must do, as Jesus had the disciples do, is answer that question. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you understand Jesus to be? A prophet? A moral teacher? A myth of the imagination? You see, what matters at the end of the day is that we answer this question correctly. It's not a matter of preference. It's not a matter of opinion, as we heard from Gandhi. It's not a matter of learning from Jesus and honoring him as a wonderful man. It's a matter of eternity. There's a significant difference between the Jesus of fact and the Jesus of human opinion. So while many people want to be associated with the good reputation of Jesus, they don't want all of the liabilities of being called a member of his church, of believing in classic Christianity. And so we as God's people must boldly proclaim with Simon Peter, Jesus is the Christ of God. And we will realize in saying that, as Jesus told Peter, that this is not something we come to on our own. This is not mere human opinion. No, this is a result of divine revelation. For this is not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And it's upon this confession, this truth, that Jesus is the Son of God, that the church of Jesus Christ is being built and is pressing back the gates of hell day by day by day. You see, Peter's confession was an acknowledgement that the apostles understood that Jesus truly was a Messiah, the Anointed One. That's what the Greek rendering of the Hebrew title Messiah means, the Anointed One. And from the time of the fall of mankind, they have awaited him. And in their minds... They've been awaiting his arrival at least since the time of David. Now, obviously, Peter and the disciples did not understand all of the ramifications of the Messiah's coming, but they had the big picture. Peter was the only one who said it, but they were all nodding in agreement, surely. Jesus was their long-awaited, God-given hope of salvation. Jesus is the Deliverer. And so it's very interesting at this point that Jesus strictly charges, commands them to tell no one. Why would that be? Why does Jesus say that? In verse 21, he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. The last thing we expect after Peter's great confession of the true identity of Jesus is for Jesus himself to say, you got it. Now, don't tell anyone. I mean it. The wording here implies that Jesus was very emphatic on this point. 
He was exhorting the apostles to keep their mouths closed regarding this truth. Why? Why in the world? Well, remember what the Jews were looking for in the Messiah. A superhuman being who would overthrow Israel's enemies, regather God's earthly people from the four corners of the world, making Jerusalem the center of the world and establishing the perfect reign of God on earth. But you see, it wasn't all about a political regime. And it still isn't today. It wasn't about land or earthly kingship. Such ideas are far too small for the true reality of the kingdom of God. But before that was known, before the disciples understood exactly what was yet to come, to have heralded all throughout Palestine that Jesus was the Messiah, could have easily incited a political movement staffed with local, loyal, unregenerate people. Quite simply, the time had not yet come for the masses to understand who Jesus really was. There was still much to be done, and a political revolution was not on Jesus' agenda. So let's see what he says to the disciples next in verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. These words we find in the Gospel of Matthew left Simon Peter not incredulous, but on the verge of rage. In Peter's mind, he thinks, our king who has come to conquer our enemies will suffer and be put to death? It cannot be, it shall not be. And no sooner did he object, Jesus turns to Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. Why such strong words? Remember back to Jesus' temptation in the wilderness with Satan. Remember Satan offers to Jesus the entire earthly kingdom. It was his for the taking if he would just bow his knee to Satan. Submit to earthly kingship. And of course, Jesus rejected it. And we remember at the end of the temptation narrative, we read that Satan departed for a season. He would be back. And so here we see Peter seeking to keep Jesus from what he was to do. To fulfill the covenant he made with the Father before the foundations of the earth. The everlasting eternal covenant of grace. It must be fulfilled and no disciple was to stand in the way. For to stop what Jesus was going to do. That was the intent of Satan. It was an attack from the father of lies. Seeking to direct Jesus away from his true ministry. And it was for this very reason that he came and that he must suffer these things. He must be delivered up. He must be betrayed and killed and be offered as a sacrifice. This is what it means to be the Christ. This is what it means to be the Messiah. Now, of course, this scenario that Jesus describes is the precise opposite of what the disciples expected. 
They knew that indeed he was the Messiah, but his words were nonsensical to them at the time. And though the twelve did not know it, confessing Christ always requires embracing a suffering Savior. On this side of the cross, having the great advantage of history, it is perhaps easier for us to accept the necessity of his suffering and dying for us. So we cling to the gory, bloody cross. In fact, we glory in the cross. And I so desire that we have this regular reminder before us. My sins, your sins are so heinous, are so evil, that they require death. And friend, if you're not a Christian, I want to tell you something. While your sins require death, that they be justly paid for because of the magnitude of what you've done in rebelling against your Creator. In God's great love for His people, Christ has died in our place that we might live. The sins of God's people were placed on Christ in His suffering that His righteousness would be transferred to us. But unless you repent of your sins, acknowledging your guilt before God and recognizing your sinful condition, believing in the truth of the gospel, you will be internally condemned to endure the wrath of God forever. And so I urge you to come to a clear, focused understanding of the true identity of Jesus Christ and your desperate need for him. What does that do? What is the call in following Jesus Christ? Look at verse 23. He said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words... Of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now Jesus has just dropped this bombshell announcement on his disciples that he is going to suffer and die and be raised again on the third day. And now he includes them. And he includes us in his mission. You see, Jesus, on his way to Calvary, brings us with him. He tells us to follow Christ is to deny oneself daily. Now, Jesus is not suggesting that we take upon ourselves some kind of asceticism. It's a, asceticism is a, a rigorous rejection of any self-indulgence. It's based on a belief that renouncing desires of the flesh and inflicting our bodies with pain and suffering can bring about a higher state of spirituality. That is not what Jesus is calling us to. Jesus is talking about a cross that is made for every Christian and a cross that each of us will bear. Now, I want to say that there 
really are very few passages in the Bible that are misunderstood and abused as much as this one. How many times have we heard it said, I have a cross to bear. And that cross is something like unemployment or a debilitating illness or an undisciplined child. Many people use this statement as a way of describing any form of suffering or hardship. But that's not what Jesus is referring to here. He's not talking about common forms of suffering, those things which afflict both Christians and non-Christians alike. We really cannot attribute this to things that do not have a bearing on our relationship to Christ. What Jesus is saying here is that when we take on the name of Christian, openly identifying ourselves with Jesus Christ, we not only bear the regular sufferings of life on earth, but we also share in the sufferings of Christ. You see, we recognize that God has promised great joy and great glory and that our great inheritance as his children is ours forever and ever. But there's really a catch to that, isn't there? Unless we are willing to partake of the humiliations of Christ, we cannot participate in the exaltation of Christ. Have you ever wondered what exactly the Apostle Paul means when he says we are filling up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ in the book of Colossians? Paul points to his own suffering as an example. But surely he's not saying that there was something deficient about Christ's death, something lacking in what he did on the cross. No, what Paul is getting at here is that there is a sense in which the church is the continuing incarnation. That we as God's people, as disciples of Jesus Christ, are not above our master. So if our Savior is to be hated in the world, and he is, then we must be willing to suffer the very same. We cannot just identify with the triumphant resurrection of Christ. We also must be willing to bear the cross that precedes it. So our cross to bear, each and every person who calls themselves Christian, is that which comes from walking in Christ's steps, embracing his life. It comes from bearing disdain because we are following the narrow way of Jesus. It comes from living out our business, our sexual ethics, our lives in our community, to the glory of God in the marketplace, instead of succumbing to the immorality and the dishonesty of the world. It comes from standing true in difficult circumstances for the sake of the gospel. It comes when the world is collapsing in moral decay, and yet as Christians we stand on the solid rock of Scripture and declare what God has said. And while we want to be winsome, while we want to be loving neighbors and seeking after the lost that they might be saved, we are called first and foremost to walk in obedience to God's holy law, no matter the consequences. And so as a result, we're called archaic and prude and closed-minded, maybe called bigots or homophobic or hateful or intolerant. You name it, 
it will be thrown at us. But we, if we are faithful to what God has said, we recognize that we will endure much scorn. You know, our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world understand this much greater than we do. I'd really like to encourage you to read the old book, Fox's Book of Martyrs, and to regularly read the news put out by Voice of the Martyrs. You will be challenged and encouraged by the faith of godly men and women who have taken up their cross and died for the sake of the gospel. Did you know daily there are more martyrs put to death today than there ever have been in the history of the world? For the sake of Christ, for the name of Christ, the people of Christ are being put to death. That is their cross to bear. It has been said that the history of Christian martyrdom is, in fact, the history of Christianity itself. Have you ever paid close attention to the last section of Hebrews chapter 11? Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves on the earth. These are people who have tasted the goodness of God and have with their lives experienced the great truth of Philippians 1.21, that to die is gain. Why is it gain? Because we will be ushered into the presence of Christ. You see, we will bear a cross, but only for a little while. Glory awaits. Our hope is not in this world. And Jesus goes on to say, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. John Flavel was a Puritan and he was commenting on this and wrote, it is the character of a hypocrite to choose sin rather than affliction. But if ever thou hast been in the deeps of spiritual troubles for sin, if God has opened your eyes to see the evil of sin, the immense weight and value of the soul and of eternity, you will not count your life dear to you to finish your course with joy. You see, in Christ's kingdom, losers are keepers. It's such a dissonant thing in our day to think that way. But Jesus is clear. There is only one way to life, and that is to lay our life aside for the sake of Christ. Jesus asks in verse 25, For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? To exalt this life in the things of this world our prestige and our possessions that we have, to do that over and above the life of our soul? What tragic folly, what foolishness, what devastation. It's death. Consider the life of Somerset Magum, who's the most famous author of the 1930s. 
He's an accomplished novelist and a playwright and a short story writer. A man who lived for his own refined tastes. In 1965, at the age of 91, he was still an amazingly rich man. Although he, had written, he hadn't written a word in years. He was still receiving over 300 fan letters every week. But what had life brought him? What did he have of lasting value? The London Times quoted his nephew, Robin. He said this of his uncle. I looked round the drawing room at the immensely valuable furniture and pictures and objects that Willie's success had enabled him to acquire. I remembered that the villa itself and the, the wonderful garden I could see through the windows, a fabulous setting on the edge of the Mediterranean, were worth 3.6 million British pounds. Willie had 11 servants, including his cook, Annette, who was the envy of all the other millionaires on the Riviera. He dined off silver plates. He was waited on by Maurice, his butler, and Henry, his footman, but it no longer meant anything to him. The following afternoon, I found Willie reclining on a sofa, peering through his spectacles at a Bible, which had very large print. He looked horribly wizened, and his face was grim. I've been reading this Bible you gave me. And I've come across this quotation. What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and lose his own soul? I must tell you, my dear Robin, that the text used to hang opposite my bed when I was a child. Of course, it's all a lot of bunk. But the thought is quite interesting all the same. Robin goes on to describe an empty bitter old man who repeatedly cried in terror, go away. I'm not ready. I'm not dead yet. I'm not dead. I tell you, he was a man who had gained the whole world, but he lost his own soul. He was a keeper who lost. You see, we might have all the things that the world can give us, but to have all the riches of Christ is incalculably greater. What good is it to have a storehouse of gold when your soul is defiled and lost? Brothers and sisters, losers are keepers in Christ's kingdom. And when we carry our cross day by day by day, we can joyfully count all in the world as loss compared to the all-surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord. And so in the end, let it be said that our lives are not wasted. But lived in the face of contempt and scorn and ridicule and perhaps even for some of us, death in the name of Jesus. That's gain. That is true life. Living unashamed of the gospel that Jesus not be ashamed of us before the Father and the holy angels in heaven. Every single Christian at one point or another becomes an absolute fool in the eyes of the world. So be it. I would far rather endure the scorn of hateful men all the days of my life than to have Jesus ashamed of me before the Father for five seconds. He closes with the disciples, I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death 
until they see the kingdom of God. Did Jesus expect the finalization, the consummate conclusion of his kingdom in his lifetime or during the lifetime of his disciples? No. You see, the fact is that the disciples certainly did not taste death until they saw the kingdom of God. There are plenty of incidents when the kingdom of God broke through in very visible force, one of which we'll look at next time. We see the kingdom of God in the transfiguration. We see the kingdom of God in the resurrection, the ascension of Christ, to name a few. These happenings made it very clear to the disciples that what they were counting on was indeed a reality. And they could afford to not be ashamed and they could joyfully call themselves followers of Jesus. And so the most important question is before us today. Who do you say Jesus is? Is he a fraud? Is he a prophet? Is he merely a great moral teacher, a myth? Or is he the Messiah? Is he God's son, the Savior and King? If you confess Jesus as the Christ... You must cling to his bloody cross as your only hope. And you must take up your own cross and deny yourself daily and follow him. Does this describe you? If so, blessed are you for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But the father who is in heaven. If this is not you, I urge you now that you would look to Christ and live. He's your only hope. He's your only savior. Repent and believe the gospel. Pick up your cross and follow Christ with joy that you might have the great benefit, the great inheritance to see the kingdom of God forever. That is our joy. That is our hope. Let's pray together. Father of grace, you have given us such a great inheritance as your people. You've revealed to us that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You've called us into union with him, that we might live upon him day by day. You have given us faith. You have called us to repentance. And you have made us new creatures that we can walk faithfully with you for your glory. Lord, I pray that we would do that daily. Recognizing the call to the Christian life is a call to enduring much. Much scorn much abuse, much suffering, perhaps even death. And yet you tell us, O God, that this burden is easy. This yoke is light. That to follow in the footsteps of Christ in carrying our cross daily, that which we inherit is far greater than anything we endure 
And so, Father, I pray that you put before us continually revealing to us, reminding us that our hope is not in this world. Our comfort is not in this world. Our joy, our treasure, our satisfaction is not in this world. It all rests in heaven. In the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. And so we pray, Father, that as we are reminded that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that we are reminded what Christ has done for us, what he is doing to and in us and through us, and what is ours, so that we might recognize that to die is gain. Father, be at work in our hearts. Stir our great desire for Jesus. Save the lost that you would be glorified, that they might have eternal joy in heaven.